The following podcast of Scene Profiles is brought to you commercial-free by The LA Jazz Scene LA's only jazz paper celebrates its 25th year as Los Angeles' leading publication in the world of jazz. Pick up one at your favorite jazz club or visit us online at lajazzscene.net Sam and Harry's Restaurant Serving Orange County's finest steaks and seafood Located inside of the Newport Beach Marriott at 900 Newport Center Drive in Newport Beach, California. Be sure to join us for our amazing new Sunday Night Jazz series that begins on October 21st with Dave Damiani and the No Vacancy Orchestra. Reservations can be made by calling 949-729-6900 or online at salmonharrys.com. Special room rates available. Welcome to Scene Profiles podcast interviewing LA's best and brightest jazz talent. My name is Lyman Medeiros. Joining me as always is my co-host Dave Damiani. How you doing, Dave? Good, Lyman. How are you? I'm great. Excited about today, as I know you are. Really excited. Our guest today grew up in Houston, Texas and moved to New York City as a teenager, where he soon landed a job as an A&R man with Scepter Records, working for the likes of Burt Bacharach and Dionne Warwick. Scepter helped launch his career as a producer. Throughout the 70s and 80s, he produced records for artists ranging from B.J. Thomas to Blood, Sweat, and Tears to Alice Cooper to Bonnie Raitt. After relocating to Los Angeles in the early 80s, he also began working as a music supervisor for television and film. And after his demo recording of Just the Way You Look Tonight was included in the film Father of the Bride, a new path in his storied career was discovered, this time as a recording artist. He is one of the world's foremost interpreter of the Great American Songbook, having released eight albums of standards. I'm very proud to welcome Steve Tyrell to the podcast. How you doing, Steve? Fantastic Lyman, my man. Thank you so much. for. <laughs> I've had the pleasure of working with Steve for over 10 years now, and I'm very, very happy you decided to uh, join us on the podcast today. I'm very happy you decided to play for 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a real pleasure. So um, I'd like to start out with kind of a, kind of a different angle. Um, I want to start out talking about uh, mutual love of all of ours, baseball. Like I said, I've toured with Steve for over 10 years, and we try to hit a ballpark whatever part of the country we're in. Pittsburgh, Seattle, Dallas, you name it. You played baseball as a kid. I know it's a real passion of yours, so I'm kind of curious. What was first, your love of baseball or your love of music? I always loved music, but um, I, I played and put my time more into sports when I was a kid. I've, I always said, you know, like if I would have put one-tenth uh, the time I spent playing baseball, like maybe learning how to play the piano, I'd be Liberace. <laughs> <laughs> so you played quite a bit as a kid then. I don't know about Liberace, but I'm Italian, <laughs> I'm Italian you know. <laughs> right, right. The first Italian piano player to pop to mind. That's great. So I know you went, you, the high school you went to in Texas had a, has a very... Uh, very reputable baseball team. Yeah, right? they're like the New York Yankees of Texas. Yeah. They're one like, um, well, the school is a Catholic school. It's an all-boys school called St. Thomas High School. And uh, Craig Biggio, to give you an idea what kind of school baseball school it is, mm-hmm. their coach is, now is Craig Biggio. He's going to be first-round Hall of Famer, you know. Right. And he's won two state championships. But I think St. Thomas High School has won, I don't know, something like 20-something uh, state championships over the year, you know. Incredible. Incredible. And uh, it's so funny that I went, I was in Houston the first year that Craig went to, took his team to the state playoffs, you know. Mm-hmm. And they, so he asked me to come by and practice and see the old field and everything. Mm-hmm. And I went over there and he said, don't go anywhere. He said, I want you to talk to the team. Because they, they have like 
Wow. They they have like all the different championships on the on the fences out there. Mm-hmm. You know, like they do with the Lakers and stuff. Sure. And <clears throat> so I went up there, and he, he when the practice was over, and he was getting ready to take the team to San Antonio for the tournament. He says, I got a guy who wants to talk to you. I want you to meet. He says, he's one of the guys that's on the fences out there. He said, you thought all, he tells the young kids, he said, you thought all those guys were dead. (laughs) (laughs) He said, but I got one that's still alive. (laughs) And I wished him well, and they went and won the state championship. There you go. That's great. That was like a couple years ago. Right. And he'd won two in a row. Wow. Craig Biggio did. Uh, Something that not not many people know about about you, Steve, um, in addition to your to your incredible music career was your passion for Little League that you had for a long time when your son Nick was playing. Yeah. Uh, you were a coach for years and you even built a Little League ballpark. Here right. Sherman Oaks, San... Sherman Oaks Little League. Man. Yeah. You want to talk a little bit about that? Oh, yeah. That was the biggest thrill I have. And it still is, actually. Uh, I mean, it's on it's on Magnolia and uh, Hazeltine and it's the back of the Sherman Oaks Park. And when I joined, my son was like five years old and started Little League. It was really run down and they... It, it and I just kind of got into like well let's fix this place up and make it like a really cool one like Encino has you know mm-hmm. Encino was like the you know the top of the line <laughs> yeah. little league in the valley right there on Havenhurst I've yeah it many times. A, a, yeah and they had Reggie Smith School of Baseball there you know, nice and uh, so we built it up we put a baseball school in there we made five fields out of it they they named one of the field steve tyrell field that's awesome and it just made it into a great place and now they've won more championships and my big thrill was when we were when nick was 12 years old we played encino and kicked their body <laughs> <laughs> so the fruits of your labor were totally yeah, realized. It, it still is i mean they've won lots of chances one of the best little leagues in in southern california and i love driving by there you know mm-hmm. nobody knows me Right, uh, and that's the way it's supposed to be. You're supposed sure. to work in the little league. You'll see with Milo, mm-hmm. you'll get in there, you'll pitch in, you'll it'll be yours for ten years. I mean, for seven or eight years till he's twelve years old, and then you turn it over to somebody else. You know, yeah. It's supposed to. It's great for the dad and the kids. The kids have a good time. The dads sometimes try to kill each other. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. You know. Um, so not only are you and Dave both Italian, both jazz singers, you both played catcher as well. I'm wondering, do you think, have you ever thought, Steve, how playing the position of catcher is, is related to being a record producer? Yeah, sure. You're kind of running the game, you know? Yeah. You know, you're calling the pitches, setting the outfield, setting the infield, usually. Mm-hmm. You know, especially when you're young. I mean, nowadays, nowadays, the managers have taken all that away. Mm-hmm. You know, right. they call the pitches and they do everything, you know, touch right. their nose and touch their... But you know, <laughs> and that means curveball. Exactly. So, exactly. But but we used to call the play. You know, pretty much ran the ran the games. Yeah. And Just, you're involved in every play. Mm-hmm. That's great. <laughs> it's fun. I mean, you're not you're never bored. That's for sure. Right. Being a catcher. So as a kid, so I'm sorry. You were a kid from Texas who up and moved to New York to pursue a career in music. I moved from Indianapolis to L.A. 12 years ago, and it was quite a culture shock for me. I can only imagine what kind of culture shock you had moving from, from Houston to New York. Was, was, that a, was that a difficult move for you as a well, kid? Well, I was lucky because I came from the Fifth Ward of Houston. My family were Italian immigrants with a grocery store in the back, you know. So mm-hmm. I grew up in the hood, really. And when I went to work for Scepter Records, that was a rhythm and blues label. So right. I was really kind of very much at home. Oh, you know, cool. We used to run, and you know, I used to go on the road with, 
the Shirelles and Chuck Jackson and Maxine Brown and you know the Isley Brothers and the, they had mostly R and B acts, so I was very comfortable being the only white guy around. You know, and that's great. You know, and, and in those days it was segregated too. You know, wow. Even in New York or just in Texas? Uh, not in New York, but every when we went on the road. Like, oh, I see what you're when saying. When we go to Atlanta, you know, to play a concert or most of the country. You couldn't, uh, they, they still had black motels for the artists, you know. Wow. And this was late 60s? <coughs> 60s, yeah, yeah. yeah, late the 60s. Wow, wow. I was only three years old. <laughs> I, I, was, I was, I went right out of preschool. Right out of preschool on tour. Uh, <coughs> so that was the music that you grew up with, basically, was, was R&B. Yeah, well, I grew up with, my family are Italian, so I grew up with the Great American Songbook in the house. You know, Sinatra, all the Italian singers, Sinatra, mm. Dean Martin, Perry Como, Mary Alonza, you know. But because we were in the hood and our grocery store was in the all-black neighborhood, well, you know, Joe Sample, the Crusaders lived across the street. Sure. And uh, when I say I was born a poor black child, see, <laughs> Joe can verify that. <laughs> you know, you can interview him and he'll tell you. Right. You know, because I stood out a little bit in the neighborhood. A little bit. And... Uh, but we had the we had a lot of blues and and rhythm and blues and and you know like Louis Jordan was big in our neighbor our house mm-hmm. you know Caledonia and um, I named my dog Baba Reba <laughs> when I was two when I was two years old I don't even remember doing that but, right and and then we listened to Billie Holiday and Duke Ellington and and all that kind of music did you have like a musical Louis Armstrong of course like a musical training like when you were Younger. I wanted to be a drummer, actually. Oh, and I, I never started, knew that. Yeah, I started playing drums when I was little, and I would always hitting on something, you know. And I could make a, a coat hanger sound like a hi hat, you know, because mm-hmm. it had paper on it. And I, and so that's what I really wanted to do was play drums. Well, I took drum lessons from a great drummer in New in Houston, and and you know my my dad got me a little kit, but I started running all the customers away, you know. <laughs> yeah, from no, the grocery store yeah there was no place to play and and except in the back of the house where you could hear this kid bashing on the drums so you literally lived in the back of the grocery yeah, store yeah you walked past the cabbage into the <laughs> our kitchen you know it was attached right. to the to the the grocery store with the house in the back it mm-hmm. wasn't wasn't in like across the yard it was right the all one building yeah and uh so then you know i started uh, he got me pads, practice pads, you know, and I never, and that kind of got me out of playing drums, really, because mm. you couldn't hear nothing. Nowadays, mm. you can have practice pads, put headphones on, and, right. and they sound, they have samples, and it sounds like you're really playing drums, you know. Yeah, exactly. So I lost interest and and got more into baseball. <laughs> and then when did you, when did you did you sing much in high school? But mm-hmm, yeah, I started singing in two bands. And one was an all-black band called the Art Boatwright Band, and uh, the drummer ended, you know, was pretty great. I think he ended up playing with James Brown or something. And nice. His name was Little Hop, and uh, so I played with them. I was a, the only white boy, and we did more. We did jazz and blues and R and B, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then I was in another band called CL and the Pictures, and they were like a cover band. Like we played only R and B. So we're all white guys, but we played all R and B. Mm-hmm. songs and that time I was very influenced by the Drifters and Benny King and mm-hmm. Ray Charles and Etta and those people you know sure Sam Cooke 
So we, I, when I started singing the Great American Songbook, it was the rhythm and blues version of the Great American Songbook. Right. It was the songs Etta did and Ray did and, and Sam Cooke did and Otis, Try a Little Tenderness. You know, that was, that was what was happening when I was started singing in my first bands. Mm-hmm. And then I made some records down there, too, when I was in really? high school. Yeah, wow. one, and there were hits, too. Wow. One of them went to, like, number four in Houston. On the pop charts, you know, very cool. And they would get picked up by rhythm by, and put out by a national label. That's what you'd make singles, you know, forty fives. Yeah, mm-hmm. and if they did well, then a national label would pick them up. And I had a few of those, and then that's how kind of how I got known, started to get known in the national world. Right. You know, from the records I was making and the records I was producing down in Texas when high school. You don't mm-hmm. happen to have any of those, do you? Yeah, I have one uh, somewhere around. That's great. One of them was written by Phil Spector. Wow. Wow. <clears throat> uh, yeah. It's young, young Boy Blues. And another one was called Payday Someday. That was a hit, man. You know. Very cool. Both, both of them were played on the radio down in Houston and New Orleans. And, mm-hmm. you know, I started working in New Orleans back about when I was about 15 or 16. And wow. Started with Alan Toussaint and Dr. John, you know. Mm hmm. Alan Toussaint came to a show of ours probably four or five years ago. That was a a real thrill. Yeah. Yeah. Well, those were my first buds, you know. Right. Dr. John and Alan Toussaint and the Neville brothers. That's great. So so you have this career in Texas and you move to New York and you start working for Scepter. And then you become a producer. Um, The 70s were like pretty much... Well, a lot of people point to, and you can speak more to this, the 70s were pretty much like the heyday of the music business with so much happening, so many records being sold, and you were right in the middle of it producing records in New York City. Tell us a little bit about that time and some of the artists that you worked with Well, producing. In the 60s, I worked with B.J. Thomas and Dionne Warwick and Burt Backrack, and, and then I signed a, a kid that was a blind singer from, from Georgia who's Ronnie Millsap turned out to be a big deal you know i remember i remember that guy yeah yeah oh yeah he became a big country artist yeah really he was really a (laughs) he was really a blue uh, r&b ray charles type artist and but he found his niche singing country songs Mm -hmm. and i worked in that in the 60s and then to in the in the 70s is when i worked with bs and t and and I started working in elect, at Electric Lady Studios. I left Scepter in 1970, <clears throat> and got a label deal with with um, Columbia Records. Oh, okay. And and, uh, and then I was working exclusively down at Electric Lady Land with Jimi Hendrix and mm-hmm. and that you know. Those so were things. you like a staff producer for Columbia? I had my own label distributed oh. by them. You know, they made a Great. deal. It was Clive Davis's idea to take young entrepreneurs that he thought you know could do and give them a li- their own label but distribute them by Columbia and finance the labels right so that was when I produced Blood Sweat and Tears it was Clive's idea and Barry Mann came in to yeah the great songwriter yeah he was on my label and and a couple of things it didn't work out they it was the first I was like one of the the first labels at uh you know, Columbia Records had like I think Lou Adler had the first one owed, and I was the second one. And then they did; they finally got it right, but they didn't give us enough points, uh, like enough royalty, mm-hmm. to uh, to really be competitive. Like uh-huh. I, man, I had Jim Croce, you know. Really? Yeah, and I couldn't sign him because it was no 
royalties and there wasn't enough royalties for Jim Croce, his producer, and me. Gotcha. You know, they only right. made they made the deal so you could f sign an artist, and if you produced the artist, there was enough royalties. Right. But if you found an artist that already had a producer, like Jim Croce did, then you couldn't. There was not enough points for all of you to make any right. money. They ended up changing that, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and giving more points and more stuff to work with. But I had Jim Croce, man. And well, how did how did how did you? Uh, well, I was an A and R guy at Scepter Records, so I knew a lot of producers and stuff, you know. Right. And they heard I had my own label, and they'd bring me things, and gotcha. it was difficult to. And so that was t Cashman and West that had him, and uh, I remember listening to his first tape, mm -hmm. and I thought, man, this guy's good. Yeah. <laughs> Remind me a little bit of James Taylor. I'll never forget you mm -hmm. know, back in the day, and. Uh, <clears throat> Then I also had Dr. Hook in the medicine show. You remember those? I can't say I do. They, they, if you look them up, they had a couple of hits. Yeah. And, uh, you know. That must but, have been a real thrill because you were still pretty young back then just to have, yeah. just to be a producer and have, have yeah. the, uh, the opportunity to run a label and sign people. Yeah. Very yeah. great. Man, the music business is very <clears throat> different today. It is. I mean, well, I signed Mark James to that label. You know, Mark mm. James ended up writing You Suspicious Minds. Right. And you were always on my mind, hooked on a feeling. Mm -hmm. wow. You know, he was on my label, so I, I I was in the right direction, get it. But it just, I, I couldn't I couldn't really get that thing off the ground. Mm -hmm. So when you began singing and making records, it was it was kind of a surprise direction for you because this was in the uh, mid '90s, and you'd been you know producing, you'd been an R guy and producing for so long. So I was always kind of curious, how much singing did you do in the years before while you were producing? Because I'm curious as to how much you had to work on singing and performing when your record deal, when you just kind of stumbled into your record deal well, as a what, performer. The, the record deal came way late. I mean, I wasn't even thinking about making a record. But what happened was, in 75, I left New York. And I went to Texas for like a year or so. And I met my lovely late wife. And uh, and we moved, then moved out to California. So there was a couple of years where I left New York, mm. went to Texas, hung out, you know, trying to figure out if I could do something. And I really couldn't. There was nothing for me to do in Houston. Mm. You, you know, mean music-wise? Music-wise, yeah. Music -wise, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, although they had a few things going on. They had ZZ Top going on down there, you know, and wow. a few things. But Bill Ham had already hooked up, uh, you know, and got all that going. Mm -hmm. But I did write a number one song with Clint Black one night in Houston. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, country song called "Love and Blind." Wow. And uh, uh, anyway, that's another story. But, <laughs> that's really cool, though. Uh, stuff you do when you're up all night, you know. Right. And uh, <clears throat> people get confused sometimes <laughs> when you're up all night. But but um, anyway, we went to went out to California, and Barry Mann and I, who had been friends on my label and worked together at Scepter. Mm -hmm. decided that we would start a production company that worked on film and television because I had a lot of credits in film and television and he had a lot of credits as a songwriter. Right. I mean, he's in the Hall of Fame, uh, the Songwriting Hall of Fame and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Not too he's shabby. written some of the great songs of all time, you know. So we were looking for something to get into and we thought, and I had worked on Alfie, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, you know, a lot of movies working with Burke Backrack and Hal David, Valley of the Dolls. So I'd been, see, I'd become like kind of one of the first music supervisors, putting songs in movies, mm -hmm. you know, and then trying to get them played and stuff. Right. 
the look of love was from a movie you know mm-hmm. and uh so i had some credits in that area so we decided we would go in the in that business so this right. was like in the 80s and uh, uh and then we did so we started a little company and we started publishing and we started looking for artists and we started looking for projects to get in and barry would write dip, make demos mm-hmm. of his songs and sometimes i would sing them mm. you know Okay. And uh, you just you just from your background you just felt comfortable enough going in and just I could always sing, you know. I mean, always. That was yeah. my instrument really. If I was even when I was producing, if I had ideas, I would sing the ideas to people cuz oh, that, right. that that I was always using my voice always. So people in the studios started hearing my demos and and I ended up singing on lots of stuff before Father of the Bride. I sang in the movie The Client I sang in Julia Roberts' first movie, uh, Mystic Pizza. I sang four or five songs in that. Really? Yeah, and because I was the music producer of it. Right. And uh, you know, that was back in the day where people would ask you to write songs for a movie. Uh, yeah, for a scene or whatever, you know. Right. And and I, I I sang in lots of movies. I can't remember all of them, but uh, but several good ones. Mm-hmm. And uh, but most of the time, and then sometimes they would just call me, like Warner Brothers especially would call me. And if they needed a song, and you know they wanted, they they envisioned it being like Tony Bennett singing in this scene. You know they'd hire me because it cost a lot less than Tony Bennett. <laughs> 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 you know, a whole lot less. And I'd do it. Like if they couldn't afford Tony, they'd call me. Or, sure. You know, or, or, or whatever. And I did a lot of rock and roll songs, all kinds of stuff. I sang some themes for television shows. The I did. Uh, a theme for a show called The Famous Teddy Z. I sang that with John Cryer, who's still around. Right. Yeah. I was telling Dave about Jesus is on that main line. Yeah, was, yeah, was yeah, that yeah, from? yeah. That was from a um, uh, that was from a, a television show, television miniseries called uh, uh, Sister Ruth. But I think that's what it ended up being called. Glory, Glory. I can't remember. But mm-hmm. it was it was a miniseries on HBO, mm-hmm. and it got all the. We got an award, a, an Ace Award. It was the year before they did. You got, the, they gave uh, Emmys to cable television. They used to have a thing called the Ace Award. Yeah, I remember that. And that's yeah. that show we worked on. We wrote all the songs. All of our songs got nominated for the for the Ace Award. <laughs> so <laughs> it's the only time in history I think you anybody ever went to an award show they already won. <laughs> That's great. It's on the piano. Oh, it's on yeah. the piano in the other room. Yeah, yeah. and it's in it, you know if it had been a year later we'd have got all the Grammy nominations. Wow. Our Emmy nominations. I mean. mm-hmm. And uh, but that was that, so I sang that and we wrote a bunch of songs for it. Mm-hmm. And uh, that must have been a lot of fun. Yeah, it seems yeah, like got, it seems uh, very fun creatively to to write a song for a movie and just be given a basic idea and just being able. It's to It's a lost art, thing. man. Some of the best songs, the greatest standards, uh, have come from movies. The way you look tonight was from a movie mm-hmm. years ago, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Swing Time, and most of the songs that were written in a lot of the songs were written in the Great American Songbook were written originally for a movie from, by Cole Porter, the Gershwins, mm-hmm. you know, people, Rogers. You know, in Hart, Rodgers and Hammerstein, all those guys wrote songs for movies. Well, in the last, I don't know, 10 years or so, that, uh, or 15, the directors are afraid to hire somebody because it you, you have to hire them, you have to pay them. Then if you don't like the song, 
So now everybody just, you know, comes in and puts songs in films. The only thing that's really getting written mm -hmm. is animation, mm -hmm. you know. But every, it's, a lost, it's a lost art. It's a shame because when you have a script and you have a story mm -hmm. and you have a director who's creative, you know, that's a really fertile area to come up with something good. You're not just a guy sitting in a room trying to write a song that right. you don't know where it's going to go, who's going to sing it, or what, you know? Right. And a totally. lot a lot of that business is, go is gone. That collaboration uh, of that kind of creative minds doesn't exist too much anymore. These days, just people just take songs that have been recorded already yeah. and license them. For Try the to stick them in a scene, you know? It's, right. it, it's, it's a shame. It really is. Yeah. That's too bad. So, um, so you you sing a you sing just the way you look tonight for uh, Father of the Bride. Mm -hmm. did, that did was sort of see that was sort of what we're talking about because when you that because that song was live in the movie, you know, right? A lot of songs are not that were written for movies were not live in the movie. Mm -hmm. They they were inspired and they went in a scene. They were part of a montage. They were something, right? But when you see somebody singing in a movie. Uh, or a band playing, 99% of the time you have to pre-record that music. Mm -hmm. In other words, you go in the studio, so you have to use your imagination. You know, you have to you you, you have to go in, say, well, what kind of band do you want at your reception? Right. You know, mm -hmm. like, do you want a disco band or you want a bar mitzvah band or mm -hmm. or an R&B band? Well, you got to know <laughs> what kind of band they want before you ever do anything. Right. And then you got to know what song they want. So they told me they wanted a soulful version of the way you look tonight. Like they said soulful, you know, touching in their mind. Right. Was the direction that they gave me, that Nancy Myers and Charles Shire gave me, if had they not given me that, that would never, so that's exactly what I'm talking about. You know, right. like they, these were right. the filmmakers that had a scene, that had a vision for what they wanted to go in that scene. And they didn't, they love the word, someday when I'm awfully low, when the world is cold, I will feel a glow just thinking of you and the way you look tonight. They wanted that to be in Steve Martin's mind when he saw his daughter dancing with her husband for the first time. Right. They wanted that, those words of Dorothy Fields to be, to be the, so they had figured it out, you know. It was up to me to deliver the kind of feel that they wanted and Sinatra's mm -hmm. was swinging, you know. Yeah, a little faster. Yeah. But how much that. how much did that experience like shape the direction of your career? Because like that that record and those songs had a certain feel, and your and your show your live show has. I mean, did was that like did that set off a light for you or? No, it didn't. People think I sang in Father of the Bride, and the next day I went out and became. Oh, I think I'll become an artist, <laughs> but it wasn't anything like that. But but what it did do. Was it's it really I believe sparked the Great American Songbook up again that song actually mm -hmm. because I did it in the movie and and it went over the end title as well my original idea as the music producer was to have me sing it at the reception mm -hmm. you know they when they heard my demo they said oh you got to be in the movie man this mm -hmm. is great mm -hmm. and I said okay <laughs> uh, you know it sounds like fun <clears throat> but. I didn't have any idea, any desire or thinking about being a, an artist. I thought that they would take that song. When we shot the scene, all there was like a hundred extras, all young 
uh, you know, like young girls. It was the reception scene, you know. So there was like 250 people on the set mm -hmm. for that, including all the actors and everybody. So every time we played it, that song was obviously a hit. I mean, people would come up, young girls would come to, sir, did you write that song? Is that going to be on the soundtrack? <laughs> you know? And and so I told the director, I said, you should put this over the end of the movie too, man. And you should get like Ray Charles or, or Sting or Rod Stewart or somebody singing. And I'll produce it with them and that'll be your song for the movie. Yeah, and you try to release it in a single and make yeah, it a, yeah. yeah, I wasn't thinking at all about me singing it over the end title. Mm. And... Uh, I'll be the guy at the reception and there'll be this great version of the same song over the end of the movie. And when they previewed the movie, they used my version over both, in both areas because when they preview the movie, they don't have the score done yet or anything. You know? Right. And every time they played it, they got the same reaction from the audiences and the, and the focus groups. You know, who's this guy singing this song? I really like it. So after three... Uh, screenings they said you know what you should sing it over the end too so I went in with Alan Silvestri and we did you know what do you think about uh, us playing it right now on the podcast would you would you mind if we play that not, song not at all no not let's all. uh let's let's cue this up this is uh Steve Tyrell from Father of the Bride just the way you look just tonight. the way you look tonight Keep that breath 
this charm Won't you please arrange it Cause I love you Just the way you look tonight Beautiful. The song that started it all. Steve, I got to tell you, I have an aunt and uncle who listen to the podcasts that are in Cape May, New Jersey. I'm mm-hmm. sure you know because mm-hmm. you perform in Atlantic City. When that when your record came out, um, a new standard. I was just kind of becoming introduced to the American Songbook, Sinatra, and they sent me a copy of your record. And they're listen, my aunt, my aunt and uncle Paul, huge fans of you. They must have seen you nine or ten times in Atlantic City they used to get on to the Trump mm-hmm. and um, it was really one of the first things I've heard other than Sinatra stuff that really introduced me to the American songbook well yeah. there's a there's a person in Cape May that has a little shop that's been playing my music since since that time you know just a fan that that sells it in her shop and she's introduced me to more people and I bet that's where you're you, you know, I bet you that's where family. they got it. I Could bet you be. that's where they got it. Yeah. Could be. I remember who you're talking about. Yeah, she comes still comes to all my concerts and yeah. comes to New York and lovely, per, to, lovely person. And uh, that happened to me a lot, you know, like kind of word of mouth, mm-hmm. uh, you know, fans underground, so, underground, uh, right? Indie. In that was <laughs> underground, but I didn't make an album after that song for I don't know five or six years. I remember Steve Martin saying after Father of the Bride, he said, man, you should make an album of this stuff. And I said, who the hell would buy it, man? <laughs> he said, I would. Steve Martin did, and he did, too. And, and I, because I, nobody was doing it, really. And uh, it, it's that first album, it wasn't until Father of the Bride Part Two came out that I, and I sang in that movie. I sang the opening, The Simple Life, and uh, the sunny side of the street in the middle and over the end. And uh, that movie ultimately uh, introduced me to the people at Atlantic Records. 
Val Azzoli, who was a co-chairman of Atlantic Records with Ahmed Erdogan, went to see that movie, Father of the Bride Part Two, with his wife. And his wife, like, told him he had to go get the soundtrack album that on the way home because she liked the, the stuff that I had done in it, he told me ultimately and he called me the next day he said man I went to see Father of the Bride my wife made me go buy the soundtrack album and it's you singing because <laughs> I, I knew Ahmed Erdogan and Val Azzoli. and Ahmed's one of the legends of all time in the music business totally. and how interesting all those people <clears throat> you were talking about earlier especially like Ray Charles and I know a lot of them recorded on Atlantic yeah so mm -hmm. it's like a I mean it was like uh, yeah Ahmed Erdogan gave me my start his company uh, Atlantic Records and they thought I should out an album of this stuff and they supported it and paid for it and I did it and it became my it became the album that Rod Stewart heard and that David Foster started getting into and and which ultimately led to Mike Michael Buble and 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 Rod making all those albums that he made came from that first album and all of the guys Rod and Michael Buble put The Way You Look Tonight on their first album. Very true. <laughs> and you Very produced true. Rod Stewart's record as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's how I became friends with Rod, is he uh, he liked what I did with the standards, you know. Mm -hmm. Rod's come to see us a few times. Oh, yeah. It's a little intimidating. <laughs> I can imagine. But you know what? For some reason, as a side note, the most intimidating person in the audience for me that's ever come see us at our show, because everybody comes see Steve. I know who it is. Paul Stanley from Kiss. Oh, really? Isn't that uh, wild? Oh, really? And I hear he's the nicest guy, but he's Kiss was great. the first band I ever remember listening well, you know, to. You know, I was talking kid. about the Electric Lady days, uh -huh. Paul Stanley, and he used to come and hang out in my sessions. Oh, yeah? And he was in a band. Uh, the original Kiss was called Wicked Lester. <laughs> and they Wicked were trying Lester. To, Wicked Lester and they were trying to get a deal so you know when we were like when I started making albums it was like hey man I can't believe you did this I mean I knew Paul Stanley wow and what about you know there's so many people uh, whose roots were in this music either their father played this music mm -hmm. you know um, you know when they, you know now they're rockers but when they go back a generation, their father was band leaders or something, you know. Right, right. And uh, maybe that's Stills what... was like that. Oh yeah, and he came Stephen to see us here in LA yeah. too. Do you remember Sundays with Sid? With Sid Mark, they used to have this Sinatra Sunday thing. It was kind of an East Coast. I remember like growing up in the house. We always had Sundays with Sid. Was that I don't Texas? remember that. No, it wasn't down there yeah. where mm -hmm. I was. Yeah, I think it was an East Coast thing. But. Yeah. So. So at this point. You you know you're a singer, you're a producer. You work with uh, you've worked with you know directors on television, working with other artists. You your career has covered so uh, such a wide span of the music business. I'm I'm wondering, do you think they're all related, or do you feel like you have to put on a different hat every time? No, they're all related. I mean, Louis Armstrong said the most correct thing I ever heard about music. He said there's only two kinds, you know, good and bad. You know, <laughs> and uh, and I've been in all kinds of music: country music, jazz, pop music, rhythm and blues for sure, and love all of it. And you know, big bands, mm -hmm. uh, Celtic music. Um, it, it's when it's good, it's just classical music. When it's good, it's good. Right. And when it's not, yeah, you yawn. 
<laughs> yeah, you know, and that's that's so I'm very comfortable. I made an album, a gospel album with Andy Griffith. It was, oh, a bit, I, was I was just about to. It was that. the biggest gospel album of all time. You know, rest his soul. He just passed away, and uh, uh, I never done a gospel album before. But we picked all the best songs from uh, all the hymns. You know, they sing in churches, and mm-hmm. and I got James Taylor's band really to be the rhythm section. Oh was, yeah, yeah. It was Lee Sklar and Russ. Nice. And uh, uh, Russ Kunkel and and Mike Landau and Bob Mann and we went in there and made arrangements of these great old country songs and Andy sang them and it sold millions, you know, because it was great. it was good. That's great. It um so if you were given a choice, would you would do you think you'd be a performer only or do you do you really appreciate having being able to do so many different things in the in the music business well it just the way i came up you know so like i like <clears throat> the honor is an honor to make your own music mm-hmm. because it's like an artist that that gets to paint you know you, you said okay that's what i did and this is what I'm leaving here for you guys to see, like or dislike or whatever. It gives you, it's a privilege to be able to make your own albums. And from that sense, I'm very lucky that that came to me because now I've made 10 albums I'm making and I have all kinds of stuff in the can, you know, I'm just, I'm constantly recording because I'm a producer. I don't have to, so it's kind of been a double blessing. Right. If I get an idea, I can just go do it. I don't have to call David Foster to come do it. Mm-hmm. You know, it, like I know how to produce a record more than I know probably anything. So, so I like them both. But for me, I'm able to do my own thing much easier because I know how to produce my own thing. Right. But the difference is, is when you're producing someone else's record, you are an employee. You know, it's not supposed to be your record with Rod Stewart singing it. It's supposed to be Rod's record, and you're helping him do the best he can. Mm-hmm. Or Linda Ronstadt's record, or whoever it is. You're producing their record. Right. So you want to bring all your experience and your knowledge and whatever, but you're not making your own record. You're making their record. Right. So I've had the, uh, the privilege of being able to do both. It's very cool. And then in 2001, a very green bass player, fresh off the boat from Indiana, auditions for your band, and somehow gets the gig, and we've been playing together ever since, and we've been all over the world together. You were cool, man. You were like, you came in, <laughs> and and uh, the guy that had been playing with me and, and played on The Way You Look Tonight in Simple Life in the Sunny Side of the Street was Chuck DeMonico, who was a great bass player, mm-hmm. one of the best ever lived, you know. And you kind of reminded me of him. Far out. You know? Very I cool. I mean, which is a cool thing. Yeah. You know, Thank cool, you. Cool thing. A cool person to be reminded of. Because he's <laughs> truly one of the best that ever was. Sure. And Lyman, Lyman does lay it down, man. He lays it yeah. down. He's <laughs> not there. I'm like, man. Oh, stop, guys. Keep going. No, stop. Keep going. <laughs> so no, it's like, don't. Stop. Stop. I know he's don't. like, stop. Stop. Don't stop. <laughs> <laughs> so ever since then we've quite literally toured the world together london moscow <laughs> tokyo cape town is there any certain city or country that sticks out in your mind as a place where you particularly loved visiting and performing foreign cities uh, i don't know london is my favorite yeah 
London's great. I love I love going to Ronnie Scott's and I love London. I do. It sounds kind of in Italy, but we don't get to play in Italy enough, you know. Yeah. Hopefully that can change, and one day we will. But mm-hmm. but but London is. My fave. I and like, I gotta say it, it's so much better because you don't have a language barrier. Right. I know. <laughs> and you got you and you got your mates there. Yeah. Know? I like the London cats, man. They're and they love the blues, by the way. Totally. All the guys They play know, our music better than we do. Exactly and they know more about it than mm-hmm. we do. Yeah. Right. You know? And 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 so they in France it's the same way. I mean, they know more about jazz than most people in America do. If I'm not mistaken, once we were playing in Tokyo, and wasn't there someone interviewing you for something like this, and they had literally like your entire catalog, and they had records from back in Texas, I yeah. think. Yeah, they had these records I was talking about. It's amazing. In I Japan, mean, I have people so that wild. I have people that know the B sides of the records I made, and and I just got interviewed by somebody recently. I don't know how they do that. I mean, they knew records I made with Barbara Lynn and and. Sunny and the sun glows. And You're talking like how how long how long like years ago? Yeah, well, Barbara Lynn was like when I was in high school. Wow. Where I had a chance to work with her. She had that great song, "If You Should Lose Me." Oh yeah, you'll lose a good thing. Mm. I don't know if you know that song, <laughs> but it was a big R&B hit. You know, that's great. I'm amazed how people. Well, I'm amazed also is how all this stuff gets on the internet. Who the hell does it? Who does it? Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that wild? It you know? is. We're going to put this up. <laughs> it, it, it's unbelievable. I was like with Natalie Cole the other day, and we were we, we went to see James Ingram together. Love that guy. Oh, James and is great. That was Saturday night. Just Saturday night. Where was he playing? He's doing something. He played at the Whiskey. The it, Whiskey? Yeah. Wow. And wow. it's a new thing they're starting called uh, the Legends Night or something. I think it's a great idea. And James played there. I went there with Natalie and Barry Gordy. Wow. <laughs> Not a and bad we, And we were talking about how, uh, you know, how, how does this stuff get, because you can imagine all the stuff that's on them, those two people. Yeah. You know, yeah. Natalie Cole and Barry Gordy, for God's sake. I mean, it, I, somebody, I, we were saying, how does this stuff get up there? Like an interview Barry Gordy had when he was 12, you know, 15 years old or something. Right. Right. Who the hell finds this stuff? It's I'll tell you that just once is one of my favorite, about one of my favorite tunes. <clears throat> well, that was written by my partner, my ex-partner Barry Mann. Wow. He went with us too, mm-hmm. and and you know the story of that song, don't you? Not really. Okay, well Barry, and I told you we were doing these demos, and we had this company together. Barry, you know, and I sometimes I'd sing a demo of his. And a lot of times they were Barry songs, and. He, but most of the time, his whole career, he'd sing his own demos because he wanted the melody to be like he wanted it and the phrasing and everything. But when he wrote just once, he heard about this new guy in town that was doing demos named James Ingram. He charged 50 bucks and he'd come sing your song for you. you know? Nice. And uh, so he brought James over and James sang the demo of just, of just once. And Barry sent it to Quincy Jones because he wanted uh, Quincy to record it with George Benson. He was producing George Benson. And Barry wrote on Broadway, you know, which was a big hit for George Benson. And uh, But this was to be the follow-up of Give Me the Night. You remember that yeah. song? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, so Quincy heard it, and Quincy had a different idea. Quincy thought, this song is great. I'd like to do it for my own album, you know, 
the dude. So he calls Barry up and he says, Barry, I love the song you sent, but can I do it on my own album? Well, Barry was thinking, I'd rather George do it. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Because George yeah. Vincent just came off two big hits. You know, yeah. He didn't know if, if the dude was going to sell or anything. But yeah, but you, he, don't, you don't say no to Quincy Jones. But you don't <laughs> say no to Quincy Jones. But. So Barry said, said you know, yeah, that's, that's, that's cool. And then Quincy went on to say, man, you're singing your ass off on this tune. And Barry said, that's not me. That's a guy named James Ingram. I said, really? I said, you think he'd sing it on my album? And uh, Barry said, sure, I bet he would. I bet he'd be knocked out. You know, we paid him 50 bucks to sing it. You know? And so he gives Quincy James's number. And this is a true story, man. And he and Quincy calls James on the phone and says, uh, James, this is uh, Quincy Jones. He says, I heard... Uh, I just heard this demo that you made for Barry Mann from Cynthia Wilde of Just Once. And he says, uh, I'd love to do that on my own album. Barry sent it to me, and I'd love you to sing it. And James says, who the fuck is this? He <laughs> <laughs> says, it's Quincy Jones, man. He said, bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> who is this? Who is this? Man, I don't have time to talk to you. you know? And James thought somebody was pulling his leg, and he didn't take the call and he didn't so Quincy calls Barry back he said, man will you call this guy and tell him that it's really me and he did and he That's called great. Quincy and then That's ultimately so was that was the that changed James's life yeah wow. it was a huge hit for James yeah number one won him a Grammy and, and, a, and it made the dude a big hit album too what a great yeah team. great story yeah. Well, for any of you out there in uh, podcast land who've never seen, seen Steve before, I highly encourage you to. He's It's a phenomenal show, great singer, great band, if I do say so myself. Amazing. And the show is full of great stories, just like the ones he's told in the podcast today. Why don't you tell everyone uh, where we're playing? Well, today? we got uh, August 31st um, at the Canyon Club in Agora Hills, a great venue um, in Southern California. Um, September 1st, if you missed that, at the Coach House in San Juan Capistrano. And then September 2nd at an amazing place, the Grand Del Mar Hotel in Del Mar, California. And uh, Steve has been, I guess, they tell me over at Catalina that nobody's more successful at the Catalina Jazz Club in Hollywood. Steve will be there from November 15th to 18th. You can probably pre-order your tickets because he sells out just about every night. And then the week after that, Thanksgiving weekend to New Year's Eve, Steve will be celebrating his eighth year at the Cafe Carlisle, um, the amazing, amazing venue. I had the opportunity to go out there and see Bobby Short years ago, and Steve's been performing just about every year for eight, eight years now. And uh, maybe ever we'll, since uh, Bobby Short, ever since Bobby Short passed. passed away, Steve Steve took his place there at the Cafe Carlisle during the holiday season. Yeah, and now I came back in May this year too, which I'm uh, I'm going to do again. Now I'm playing twice a year at the Carlisle, so it's a uh, it's you know, it's 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 an honor. Bobby Short played there for thirty six years. Wow! And this will be my eighth. So, but let's see how many more is it? Uh, <laughs> twenty eight more to go. Twenty eight more. Hell, I'll be sixty by then. <laughs> we're, gonna, we're gonna we're gonna have to come out. We're gonna have to come out this year to the Carlisle and check that out. That's that's awesome. That's yeah. just amazing venue. The best. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Steve. Any other questions for Steve? Dave, yeah, just wanted to off? just let people know that if you pick up uh, a September issue of the LA Jazz Scene, you'll see Steve Tyrell on the cover. There'll be more in depth um, interview and uh, also um, more information about where he's playing. 
And um, God, I just want to say, Steve, you've been one of my heroes and one of my favorite recordings that you've ever done. I want to play for everybody. I don't quite know anybody that sings the American Songbook like you that is able to put their personality into it. Amen. And um, when I hear this song, it almost makes me cry every time, but it's amazing. It's uh, it's This Guy's in Love um, from your Burt Bacharach um, album, and it's just beautiful. It's one of the best recordings ever, <laughs> and it's by far my favorite recording that you've ever done. Oh, thanks, man. So, I, saw, I saw Herb Alpert last night. <laughs> great. He's the man, you know, uh, one you of my dear friends, and he, he played on that, too. Well, yeah. you're the man. That's great. And um, we're going to take it out. So thank, thank you, boss. Thank you so much, Steve.
die.